Welcome to Equestrian Movement's Fast Do No Harm podcast. I'm your host, Katie Boniface, co-founder of Equestrian Movement with Sarah Gallagher. We work with horse riders who want to build a stronger bond and a deeper connection with their horses. In our first Do No Harm podcast, we discuss with other industry professionals how to work with horses to firstly do no harm and secondly support their mental, emotional and physical well-being throughout the training process so that we have horses that enjoy learning and ask to be ridden. Each episode, we discuss the different influences our training can have and how we can improve our horses' overall athleticism, soundness of mind and body, and emotional fortitude, while strengthening and deepening our relationship with our horses. Each week, I will endeavor to bring to you a new episode on horse riding, training, handling, and husbandry, or an interview with other industry professionals to help you address where and why you might get stuck in creating the beautiful union of dancing souls that is the equestrian sport. Are you ready to kick off today's show? Let's get started. Hey team, Katie here from Equestrian Movement and this is part three of our three-part series with Ben Hart from Hearts Horsemanship. Make sure that you have caught up on the previous episodes because we're going to pick up the conversation where we left off on last week's episode and trust me when I say it's another great one. Let's open another can of worms uh, and talk about anthropomorphism because I listen to you <laughs> and you reference a lot of like human relationships, right? And I hear a lot, like when we start referencing human relationships, oh, you're anthropomorphizing the horse. And I would like your take on it. <laughs> uh, that's a brilliant question. Okay. Um, there are, there are, there are two reasons. Um, let's just take it the reason that, that, that I teach and, and talk about the way I do is because uh, that's what human beings do. We anthropomorphize. We are, we are conditioned from a very early age to think of animals having a full set of human emotions. So we grow up with cartoons, with, with um, you know, animals with uh, intentions to hurt and other animals, devious, cunning plans, cartoons. You know, Walt Disney's got a lot to answer for. Um, <laughs> and, and we go through books and we, we have animals that we, you know, cuddle and we, we grow up with cuddly toys and we give them names and, and we do all of this stuff. And so we naturally anthropomorphize. So it's a term of reference for me as a trainer that people can understand. Yeah. Secondly, that, that when people, um, if I can get them to anthropomorphize in the right way, now there, there's a good way and there's a bad way. If you think that horses are, are um, capable of being deceitful, so you know, he's deliberately doing things to take the mickey and um, do all that. Now that's kind of a bad piece of anthropomorphism because A, it's not there, but secondly, it leads us down a wormhole of negativity and he's deliberately trying to do things to annoy me. If we use it in a positive way, it has a slightly better outcome and it's knowing which and where they are. You know, it's the difference between my horse is jealous and my horse is resource guarding. Um, but if I can give people the experience of what that animal might be feeling. So I will talk a lot about fears and phobias. So, um, you know, talk about spiders, for instance, you know, apologies if anybody's got spider phobia that's listening. But, you know, if, if you think about that spider phobia, you know, how do you feel? How do you want to? be worked with you want me to just keep walking towards you and i talk about what happens if we've been working at spiders with you for three four weeks or a month on on small steps and then i get out of patience one day and i kind of throw the spider towards you you know what are you going to feel the next day yeah. and you're going to want to go oh ben yeah fine come and work with me again i know you were in a bad mood yesterday i don't worry about it i still trust you <laughs> you know i've never anywhere in the world had anybody go anything other than i'm not working with you you know, I, no, it's going to take months at least. And then I'll still be thinking you're going to throw that spider if you get cross. Mm -hmm. and, and if you can get people to to have that emotional journey and go, you know what? I, if I feel like that, what might my horse feel like? Now, the, the cutting edge of science is that we know that our equines have an emotional sense. That animals are, are having these emotional journeys that more and more you know what was once taboo to say that animals had feelings and um you know were having emotional drives for what they did more and more the science is of course those emotions now we don't know what those emotions feel like 
no more than I know whether you're what it's like for you to be happy. You know, I can perhaps tell if you are, but I can't tell what it feels like for you to do. So there's this fine line that then becomes uh, about anthropomorphizing in a positive way that allows you to understand the animal's experience and to get closer to what I would call firing our mirror neurons. So our mirror neurons are the neurons in our brain that we will fire when we see somebody doing a behavior. It's why we yawn and stuff like that. So when you know somebody, when we have a, what we call a we map. So, you know, if we have a relationship and you bang your toe, I kind of know what that will feel like because my brain will go, oh, I don't like when I bang my toe. That really hurts. And so if we can get inside that with our animals, then we get a much deeper experience of that anxiety they might feel or where the edge of the comfort zone is or when they're ready to stop and, and all of those things. And we, and we use it positively to, to try and channel our connection between, between the two. The danger is, as I say, is when we start to use it in, in ways that if, we, and I'm, I kind of, I'm bending it to, to suit the message I want to say, um, but at the same time, you know, you can go, well, if you can say that he, he, you know, has positive emotions, we can say that he has negative emotions and, and it's that taking the Mickey thing. So the example I always use is that, um, let, let's say that our horse is taking the Mickey. He's, he's deliberately doing things to annoy us. And you go for that to happen. What actually has to happen in the brain is the animal has to have a, a, a sense of fun and happiness and, and joyous emotions. Now we can argue say, that the animals have those, what they're like, we don't know, but they do. They to do that because they need to have negative emotions. So they need anger, frustration, rage, all of those things. And the reason they need those is because they've got to understand them in you as a, as a handler. Now, then they have to have a sense of humor. Now, the sense of humor involves, in being deceitful, finding it funny that you are in discomfort or having negative emotions. So your horse has got to go, okay, I've got happy emotions, let's do that. Uh, I need to understand negative emotions because I need to understand the emotions in this other species. Now, that's the difficult thing is that they can't. They can't understand those emotions. They can tell if we're happy. They can learn what happy or sad or those things sorts of make. But as far as we know, it's really difficult for most species to actually truly understand the emotions of another species. Even, even humans, you know, we can't understand what it feels like to be a donkey. <laughs> you know, we don't. You know, so giving the horse the ability to, but let's say they have it. Let's say they have it. They, 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 they can, they have this sense of humor. They know what's going to, they, they stand there and they go, you know what? Monday morning, she's always in a rush to get to the office. So what I'll do is when she comes to get me, I'm going to run away. I'm not going to be caught. That will really tick her off because she is going to be late for work. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they get out there and then they got to execute the plan. So out you come and you go to get the horse and you're just walking up and then they go, watch this, watch this, watch this. And then they run off. You know, what the hell happened there? She hadn't got it yet. And then they do it and they repeat it and they do it three or four times deliberately to make you angry so they can go, <laughs> that's so funny that she's angry. <laughs> you know, that's a human emotion. That's, yeah. that's not one that equines have. And so when we're talking about anthropomorphism, it's important to know what's really possible, the science underneath it and what we're using to try and get a message across or to understand some of the similarities, how we might experience um, similar emotions or, or life or the things that we find as a challenge. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think any way that we can coach empathy into our students for their horses and their understanding of their horses is you know just doing it like sometimes I reference you know it's like driving a car it's like riding a motorbike it's like changing a gear like I don't actually think that the horse is a car because it's a sentient being that's capable of thinking and feeling for itself but if you can like kind of have a reference point to learn from it's easier to learn and then you have to learn your own like within yourself where that analogy kind of helps and then you know if you ride your horse like a car it's probably going to buck you off so at that point it's <laughs> not going to be helpful anymore so understanding like where you can get a feel for the the power that you can create with a half halt 
helps you understand from how to drive a clutch car versus like <laughs> don't just kick your horse and like change the gear and hope it's going to accelerate because that's probably going to be a buck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and all of these things work differently for different, different people. And, and, and as a trainer, you know, you're trying to grasp, but getting the message across, how do you, how do you yeah. get someone to feel, which is what everybody wants to be able to do the, the right thing to do. What's my animal's experience. And we, we struggle to listen enough to other humans that alone to our animals <laughs> For sure. um, and, and what they want. So it's a massive challenge and that's the growth. That's the, the ability to begin to grow and let the horse be the teacher at the same time as, you know, you're obviously trying to keep them safe and set boundaries and do all of this stuff and then still learn from at the same time. You know, it's a massive juggling act for anybody. When do I, when do I listen and learn and when do I not? And when do I be the teacher and when do I give them direction? And no wonder people wander around looking like they, why did I get this horse? Remind me. I, I can't remember. It was supposed to be fun. Um, yeah, great. I just am adoring talking to you. I knew this was going to be a fun conversation. <laughs> and I'm really enjoying your insight. I, I guess, uh, yeah, um, I'm uh, really lucky to, to have met a lot of good horses and a lot of donkeys and mules and, and a lot of people to learn from and, and experience it. But also, yeah, it's got to be fun, you know, uh, training and life you know we got to try and have a little bit more of an after and i think horsemanship would be better if we could just relax a little bit more and, and real the realize the craziness of what we're actually trying to do you know if you, if you think about yeah here's a 800 kilo animal i'd like you just to get him to do whatever you want when he doesn't want to even if you doesn't you know and you just think about the absurdness of this and then we go blaming the animal for he's not doing this you know you're like if you wrote all this down and, and turned it into a spoof kind of comedy film, people would go, you're crazy. What are you doing? You can't do that. Anybody you know? outside of the industry thinks we're crazy. <laughs> well, I don't think a lot of people admire the ability to just even communicate with any way with, with another yeah. animal or species. You know, it's amazing. My, um, my partner is not horsey at all. And my horse is like, if you were going to call a horse dominant and aggressive, that is who he'd be. But he's only like that if he's threatened or if he thinks you don't know what you're doing. And so um, he, he just is like, you guys are crazy. <laughs> he knows like how difficult they can be. And he's also a big horse as well. So yep. he's, he, when I was heavily pregnant, he started chasing my partner out of the paddock <laughs> feed time and uh, I've just like never asked him to do anything with him since basically because it's just too difficult for the two of them to kind of find that place where they can get along <laughs> yeah, yeah and I don't think that's what everybody's striving for and, and working for and then we give ourselves a hard time that you know, we're in this relationship counseling program and, and we're not perfect yet rather than again as I say just enjoying that process of of learning about each other and learning about ourselves and knowing when to ask questions and and when to run away and it's appropriate to run away at times you know um for sure so it, it's just amazing to me that the that we give ourselves such a hard time about what to me is is people doing amazing things you know people listening to this will, will are doing incredible things you know beyond what they'll ever give themselves credit for and i feel that's really sad yeah but that actually people aren't able to stand back and go, you know what? I'm, I'm absolutely doing it. I am enough. That's, you know, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm and the ability to say to yourself, I am enough. You yeah. Know, I think is a really powerful message. And I would say to people, you know, write it in your bedroom mirror or your bathroom mirror, put it somewhere you see it every day and just keep repeating it to yourself for 30 days. I am enough. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really good mantra to, to work on, you know, will you get better? Yeah, probably. Um, but right now you are enough. You're doing that. You're in the fight. You're trying to help your animal. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. It's, it's definitely the equestrian curse. Hey, like we'll spend, you know, a year, two years working on this, like one goal and then we'll hit it and be like, okay, what's next? Instead of, oh, I did so well. Like I've been working on this for so long and now I'm like, can celebrate this win. 
we never we never celebrate the, the success or and even the small wins along the way we're always like okay i can do that now what can i do next but but i don't think that's horsemanship i think that's life i think that's human beings i think you know learning to, to be grateful learning to it's not arrogant to say wow i did a good job you know learning to mm-hmm. to be okay with being enough you know a lot of people have had that taken out of them from from a generational of parenting of you know doing all that so I, I, i'm not sure it's entirely about horsemanship unless unless horses are attracting people to them that have that sort of tendency i think in life in general people struggle to to be good enough to themselves, to be kind enough to, to be kind enough to each other. I mean, I do know the equestrian world can be particularly uh, <laughs> nasty yeah. uh, sometimes. Um, and, and that's to do with, yeah, uh, not wanting to look at somebody else's way or accept it and, and go, well, you do what you want to do and I'm going to do what I want to do and you know, we'll agree to disagree. You know? And I don't want to, I don't, I don't, don't judge people. You know, If you want to use a method, great, use a method, use it well. If you want to use punishment, okay, use punishment, but but research it first and do it correctly. If that's, if that's your chosen thing, do it well. Um, don't do it without thinking. Don't do anything without them, without having a th- thought, having the principles in place, You know, thought, thinking about that animal first. And so I just think it's human nature to a lot of degrees. We haven't been taught how when someone gives you a compliment, oh, wow, you're doing a great job with that horse. No, no, really. You know, wow, you look lovely today. What, this whole thing? You know, I just threw it on, you know. Oh, my gosh, you've lost so much weight. Oh, no, no, I haven't done it. You know, we just batting back compliments like they're a tennis ball, you know, rather than just going, thank you. Yeah, yeah, you know, so true. Just, just, just take it. Just someone gives it to you. It's not your right to throw it away. Just take it. Thank you. You know, I appreciate, appreciate what you said. I'm, you know, I'm working on it and, and just taking that. And, that, and that's again, a tiny thing just to change your behavior and develop habits where you become grateful and, and you show that gratitude and, and your recognition. Yeah, I did that. Yeah. Ah, so good. So uh, we do have a couple of questions from our audience. Um, one of our founding philosophies is first do no harm and seeing that that is one of yours as well as to do no harm. So um, the question is how you assess it in action. How do you know <laughs> if, um, if what you're doing is having a negative impact on your horse? Mm. I always start with the presumption that that it is having a negative impact. And and this comes from doing a lot of work in welfare, I think. Um, you know, if if you really drill down and, and having done this long enough to be asked these sorts of questions, you know, is riding okay? Well, no, because you're in the saddle and the pressure and the, what about having a bit? What about having a shoe? What about, you know, should we keep them in this? What about putting a rug on? Should we put them in the step? You know, you know, you could go through anything and then you go to it and, and uh, there's a great study of um, horses of the great basin and it's an amazing study. It's all written up at um, 8,000 hours of studies of horses in, in Nevada. And, on the front cover are three beautiful uh, Mustang fillies, absolutely stunning, sleek, shiny, taken in in the spring. Um, and then I, it's like page 175. They're like same picture, and it's like all three of these horses died in a winter snowstorm. Mm. And you go, okay, so so like the horse is is damned if it does and damned if it doesn't. If we keep it in domestication, there are constrictions and, and fines, and do we want to inject it? And do we want to do we have to do the things that make up for it? But if we just leave them wild, then they starve to death in a drought, or they freeze to death in the winter, or they get washed away in a flood. And 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 so I, I'm not sure there's anything that we can do to truly go, there is no harm whatsoever. Yeah. Now that sounds very morbid, like, oh my God, this is it. I'm thinking about having horses then, you know, I'm going to shoot myself. But the, the point I'm, I'm trying to get to is when you start with that, then you start to minimize what you do and you start to look at the ethics of, for me, um, you know, is, is this, and this again comes back to studying ethics about, you know, what am I basing my decisions on? So is this thing that I'm going to do to the horse for the good of the animal? And is the short term, discomfort worth the long-term benefit to the animal because even if you think about i'm going to train my horse with positive reinforcement and give them food rewards for getting fit enough to be ridden the process of getting fit enough to be ridden in causes strain on the muscles 
so that those muscles are damaged and repair and get stronger. So ultimately, are we doing some damage? Are we doing some harm? But is it better for that animal to be able to ride so they can go out and get mental stimulation and exercise and not get overweight and not get fat and, and things that could be far worse? Mm. So, so for me, the, the process is about that balance then. You know, I, I, if I'm in a welfare situation, it is the do no harm how do I weigh that one animal that needs biosecurity measures or, or a blood drawn to make sure it's not carrying a disease that's going to infect 500 others that's going to cause massive suffering. So the do no harm is yes, there is a little bit of harm, but I'm going to do that as quietly and as calmly and I'm going to do it with training, but that needle going in is still going to be a little bit uncomfortable. But in my own mind, can I justify that because that prevention of 500 other animals uh, becoming seriously ill or having to be euthanized? And so uh, it, and it starts out from having those principles. Um, you know, I've seen horses that are clicker trained have become extremely aggressive. And you would say psychologically, we've done them some harm. So the illusion that we can do no harm mm -hmm. is 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 fed by the fact that if we start out with the fact that we probably are doing a little bit, how do we continually minimize it? How do we, how do we do it over? Yes, there's a little bit of discomfort here, but actually the rest of your life, the other 99% is, is really good and it's positive. Okay. Then that kind of balances out. Life is a bit of that. It's a bit like that for humans, you know? Yeah. So that's what I'm constantly trying to sort of monitor and to think about in those interactions. How can I give the animal the best experience or a mm. good experience even when it's you know restraint for for something that has to be done that the animal hasn't had time to prepare for and again i'm talking a lot about you know rescue situations and welfare situations how do we do that where we can do it as calmly we give a good experience and the animal goes on to to actually bigger and better things as a result of that intervention yeah rather than um not doing them at all so uh and then that ties in with the other the other principle one of them that i have is about um making sure the horse is always sort of their needs come first so you know am i doing this for myself or am i doing it for the benefit of the animal mm. um so reference the horse that goes two right two times around the arena and then leaves you know um, because i was doing the thing for them and that was a real do no harm. I don't need to do anything else. That was it. Quick, go early, finish. Um, I know that that's going to be of the best benefit to the animal rather than trying, as you say, create a problem to then solve and look good for. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it is a minefield. It is. It is. And it's definitely something that like I have battled myself with. Like there was a good period where I was trying to figure out if I was going to give up horses altogether because I didn't like who I had to be to be successful in the industry. And so it was, um, you know, reviewing my principles and how I wanted to work with my horse and starting there. And my instructor fired me because she said I was unteachable because <laughs> I wouldn't bully my horse into submission. <laughs> and so Did like... Your favor. Yeah, that's it. Uh, and so it just is like that, you know, yeah, it, it's such it's such a minefield because I think the more you go into it, the more you realise, yeah, like, you know, being on their back, you get either they can get arthritis in their elbows and like those, you know, that we are we are having an impact on them and it is trying to to minimize the impact. Um, I think one of the biggest things that I've been looking for recently, you can kind of like see it in their eyes is like little micro tears in confidence and trust in you where you know that you've gone too far, but that is like so subtle, you know, I, I would, that's like really getting, I think it's, that's the benefit of having a relationship with your horse is that you do start to learn those more subtle cues. It's hard to have that, you know, in that training environment where you're seeing lots of different horses, they kind of, they don't, they don't show you that face. So getting to the point of vulnerability with a horse where they can show you those kinds of emotions, um, you can start to see those, those little smaller things, but it is, it is a constant evolution. It's like figuring out where that line is and trying to balance and ride it. And I, 
think as long as we're comfort confident in our principles, we can kind of get there. It is, but I think again, it, you know, it comes down to to doing your planning beforehand. You know, if you've, yeah. if you've got a written shaping plan and you know how big the steps you are, and you know you're just about to jump five steps, when you shouldn't, you haven't done the the one or two that you should be doing. You know, you you kind of consciously know that you're asking too much. Yeah. You know, if you're going to have a principle where you always quit early, and and like you've said, you know, you, you just stop and you go, I see, I'm going home then. That 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 was brilliant. You know, I don't I don't know how much further I could have got. But what I do know is I got something really nice there yeah. and I'll come back tomorrow or I'll come back later. And, I'll find it. and it's trusting that process of learning that these small steps, stopping early, having that, that ethos where you're not trying to find the edge of that comfort zone all of the time. You know, yeah. you are working towards it. You, you know when to stretch it and when not to. And you've got those good principles of shaping and stretching the comfort zones and all of those things. They give you the baseline to then be able to look for those micro signals that you're talking about and even then you know you can view it as you say down to my gosh did his did his upper eyelid raise you know how much more of the white eye did i just see there you know what is was his ear at 45 degrees and so you know and, and you can break it down and I, I just read a science paper today actually they were talking about they were doing some video and, and using technology to be able to break down the science. And there was like 7,000 facial expressions that they had recorded and were trying to analyze. Yeah. A lot. And it, it, it's a lot for anybody to take. Was his muzzle a bit tighter there? Did he do this? And so you like you say, when you've had the benefit of a long-term relationship, then you begin to tune into that, but you generally tune in because you've overreached it at times. And you've yeah. learned that when he does that, the next thing that's coming is that. And then is you really will see the white of his eyes. <laughs> and so you go, okay, I'm going to back off next time. And I know what comes next. And you learn that stuff. The other thing I would just say to somebody is if they're trying to find the edge of that comfort zone, what they should look at is the general increase in facial expression. So you don't necessarily need to know oh his muscles tight and his little bit of his eyes showing there and he's got the wrinkle above his eye and his ears twitching and i've analyzed oh god what's he doing now he's moved on again what you need to just do is there's an increase i can see you know he's calm and relaxed and he stood in the stable dozing there's this kind of just that relaxed face as you approach the edges of of where you're going to go across the threshold whether you're going to make it uncomfortable or stressful you'll see an increase in their facial expressions and mm. the more that begins to come up that's a general guide to go i'm pushing towards where it's going to go to a level that's unacceptable i don't necessarily need to analyze every individual one of those i just can see that that is beginning to exceed because the ears are twitching the eyes moving and there's a bit of muzzle there's that, that whole thing and i just see that and if people could focus just on that one thing then they can refine you know even down mm. and down and down but yeah. but ultimately like we say you know there's, there's such tiny signals that that you could step in the barn and the horse goes, oh, and then you go, oh, my God, that's it. He doesn't want me to be here. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. um, and that's fine, too. Yeah. Uh, but you have to make that decision about, you know, not every time when you see someone you like, do you think, yay, fantastic, I'm seeing you. It's great. Come on over and annoy me for 20 minutes when i got something else to be doing. Because like, yeah. you know, I'm actually engaged in this, but you've come around. And you're a dear friend, but I really needed to be getting on with this. But <sighs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> the horse has stood there grazing, eating, it's got its head in its feeder, dozing, and we turn up and they're like, yay. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, sure. we want them to run enthusiastically across the yard towards us. Go, oh, I know I was grazing with my friends, but I'll give it all up for you because I love <laughs> yeah. you. All. That's what we want. How hard is it to give us those horses, right? <laughs> I think um, one of the, the problems that we can get ourselves stuck in and why those shaping plans are so important is that we can get very black and white. Like, for example, if it's a float loading situation, the horse is either on the float or it's not. So you've either succeeded or you haven't. But if you have that shaping plan, like for me, I know, you know, if a horse is going to have a problem with being in the float, like they don't feel safe, you're going to see the first resistance at the tailgate, like at the bottom of the tailgate. And then you're going to see the next, like with two feet on the tailgate. And then you're going to see the next, like they're sniffing it to see if it's safe to go in. And then you're going to see the two feet like in the float by the, other two feet are like still not on the tailgate yet and then it takes like a big commitment for like the hind legs to come up onto mm -hmm. the tailgate and generally we can like have a couple of steps forward from that 
but then they still might go, oh, no, this is too much, and, and, then, and then they run out. So if we could have, you know, as you said, set it up to give the opportunities to praise and, like, finish earlier, we could, we can just bring them to the tailgate and walk away. But if you look at that with, like, traditional training, you're creating a dangerous horse. That's never going to go on the flight. Yeah, 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 of course, of course you are. If that's if that's if that's what people believe, but you know, like I said, this comes back to the anthropomorphism is to say to somebody, okay, you don't like spiders, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a spider and I'm going to get you know I don't know, depends depends. Having worked in Australia, you know, it's a bit more relevant there because spiders <laughs> can kill you, you know. But over here we don't have that. So, but you say to somebody who's got a fear of spiders, you go, okay, what is it? Some people don't like spiders that run too quickly. Some people don't like big spiders. Sometimes don't like little spiders. You know, it's not just spiders; it's what the spiders are doing. You know, it's unpredictability. So you say, okay, I've got the spider. I'm just going to walk towards you. And I'm just going to keep walking. What are you going to do? You know, and pretty soon they're going to just like I'm going to back off. I'm going to run out screaming. I'm going to say, okay, we'll use positive reinforcement. I'm going to give you. 10 bucks, you know, would you hold the spider? And they're like, no, I'm stupid. <laughs> I'm, I'm like 50 bucks, 100 bucks. You know, I can get up for some people a million dollars, you know, a million quid. Just hold the spider. They're like, for how long? <laughs> and you're like, that's what your horse is doing. They're like, like, you know, I can get in the trailer. If I keep my eyes closed and they just stand everybody. And then I'm going to shoot out again. Yeah. And so, you know, we can anthropomorphize to get people to be thinking about how they want their behavior shaped, you know. And, and we don't start at the trailer. You know, the key thing with the shaping plan is that, that most people start in the wrong place. They go to the problem to solve the problem. Yeah. Got a problem with loading. I'm going to try and get on the float. Um, if if I've got a problem with uh, picking up feet, I'm going to try and pick up the feet. Rather than going, actually, let's back so far off that we we actually can't fail. You know, can you walk over a lead rope on the ground? Well, of course I can. Yay, we succeeded. That's brilliant. That's great step number one. Give you a scratch, you know? uh can you back over a lead rope on the ground yeah, well, pretty sure i can well you mean pretty sure so you don't actually know and so you you know you're challenging people to go and i need to know that you need to have that confidence in the animal they need to have the confidence in you that we can back over the lead rope we can go over you know a pole on the ground we can build that up through tall pole and you, you break the, the float down into its elements which are which is walking over things it's walking on to hollow things that sound differently it's walking through narrow things it's walking under things um and those elements then get put together where you're nowhere near the trailer because you have complete control of that and the, the one thing that happens is when you take the horse to the trailer and you give him a scary experience that's now imprinted on them because he's designed to learn from negative experiences whereas mm. if you do these small steps and you work out that you're building a relationship you're not going to poison the trailer to having been this negative place where it suddenly goes tight on my head collar and we get the pull and the noise comes up and all of that so you build mm. that confidence in these tiny steps and like you say then you get to the bottom of the trailer and he takes a step and, and and he kind of is willing to move forward you know and you, and you give him a, a scratch and you go that's enough for today so what is the experience that the animal had? Not how far did he get up the trailer? When yeah. I ask and step on the trailer tomorrow, you know, I'm, I made a, I, I learned this really young with a, with another Mustang that I was working with and he uh, was in the States in the step up trailer. The load of work with him was leading him around, going over things, doing stuff. And I, and I thought, you know, stupidly, because I wasn't as into understanding shaping plans as I am now. I opened the back of a gooseneck trailer as a step up. I went in. 30 foot line i just left him outside and i went in to shut the partitions back so that he could you know get up if he wanted and i turned around and he was in with me yeah. he'd just gone like well you're in there so i'm going in there yeah fair enough but i'm like oh now i have i've got a horse in here i haven't talked to step out <laughs> i've not taught you how to reverse i was just going to get you to look in and you know but now you're in and now i don't uh you know so <laughs> think about those things when you're planning you go okay so i've got a step up trailer i need to get you to be able to step off things and back out and do all that before i ever get to that situation so you, your responsibility is to add all those things together and then enjoying all of that process and having yeah. fun with it and then you know if we're shaping behavior well it's that bit between if you're picking up feet you know you've got a young horse people stroke all the way to the bottom of the leg they got all that good you ask most people what's the next step they go pick up the foot okay cool but for me, there's five steps that go in between that. And it's the size of these steps that's, in, that's important. You know, okay, so we're, we're touching the hoof and we're doing all of that. And then it's about, can you shift your weight onto the other three feet and keep one foot on the floor? And okay, so that gets rewarded. And then can you just tip your foot forward, your heel up off the ground a little bit, literally centimeter, you know, fraction. 
gets rewarded. Then can, you know, you tip your hoof up onto just resting. I haven't taken off off the ground. I've literally just tipped you onto the toe rewarded. So, okay, now can I just slide your foot around on the floor, uh, on the floor and, and I reward that, you know, and then can I pick your foot up and just move it over there? It's come off the ground. I've now moved it. So I've taken five steps, five opportunities to reward them, five chances to say, yes, that's what I wanted. Five chances to go, wow, you're a little bit stuck here. I need to repeat this and I, and I need to stop there until you get that steady compared to the one I've touched your leg, now pick up your foot, which normally results in the animal slamming the foot back down. Mm, yeah. So the, the value again in this breaking it down into small enough steps is it makes it easy for them to learn, but you've got this massive opportunity to go, yes, that's what I wanted. Yes, that's what I wanted. Yes, that's what I wanted. That was really good. Well done. Who do you want to be around? You know, um, so it, it's just getting over our, our actual knowledge of learning and how learning takes place, which is a real challenge for most people because we, we still don't know how yeah. learning happens. Yeah, for sure. Um, so some more questions. <laughs> Sorry, I get excited and start talking. About I love it. It's so good. That was so um, beautifully explained as well. Uh, so how the horse learns, <clears throat> like kind of extrapolating on that, and why that one size um, fits all isn't great. Mm. And I think everybody knows the answer to this, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I literally, um, you know, when I started, uh, it, it was common for people to say, you know, there's no one size fits all. There's no magic bullet. And then we got positive reinforcement and everybody suddenly went, yeah, there's a magic bullet fixes everything. Yeah. And you're like, well, hang on, how come one minute we got nothing and it doesn't fix everything. And now we haven't, and it's an amazing tool and, and it's fantastic and we should use it. But, but the problem is we need to step back and go, horses are individuals. They all have their own learning styles. Um, they have their own characters based on their experience. We've got unique environments. We've got human beings that have stories and abilities and skills. And, and there's this combination of factors. You know, as a trainer, I could go and say, right, I want you to, to do this. I want you to stand up to him, back him up when, when he gets into your space, if that was my method. But if I'm looking at an owner who, who doesn't have that skill, who doesn't want to use that skill, who who that's not who, what they want their relationship to come from. What do I do now? You know, how do I match what that owner wants? So I don't go to an owner and say, this is what you've got to do. I'm going to an owner and go, how do you want it to be? You know, how do we find that principles? Now there is a method, like I've said, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, shaping, kind of conditioning. There's this massive underline, but every method that there is, is based on the science of behavior that, whatever method you look at, you can look at it and you go, that's positive reinforcement. Now they're using negative reinforcement. The shaping steps are too big. That was counter conditioning. It's all there. It's the science of behavior, whether they know it or not, whether they execute it well. So learning the science of behavior allows you to look at any method and know whether you're being told, what you're being told is actually what's happening. Mm, yeah. And, and so for me, you know, that the, the methods that it's easier for people to buy into it's easy and with the desire to buy the abc what do i do because that's what we we want to we want to have i want the solution like i've I've said and i think it takes much more of a long-term approach to go well it depends yeah it depends on the situation why is my, my i want to stop my horse biting what do i do well you know for some trainers well this is what you do for every horse that's biting that's what you do for others, it's like, well, it depends. Why is he biting? You know, if, he, if he's biting because he wants to get rid of you, then you have to stay. If he's biting because he wants you um, uh, to, if he's biting because he wants you to leave, you have to stay. If he bites you because he wants you to stay, you have to leave. <laughs> you know, if he's biting for attention, you can't give him attention for that because you're just going to reinforce the behavior. So you have to kind of step away, cross response, all right? Okay, but when you do the right thing, now I'm going to give you the attention that you want. If he's biting because he's in pain, get rid of the pain. If he if he's biting because he's frustrated and because he's got no environment enrichment, and if he's biting because you know, and you, you eliminate all of these things, and it's just a harder route for people to to accept until that that part of their journey. Um, but it's how we'd like to be treated. Go to the doctor and you say you've got bad back. Won't have these tablets. 
Uh, yeah, but I, but, I, but I know the tablets won't work. Yeah, but that's my method. You're going to have the tablets. Um, as opposed to going, well, I'd, I'd really like actually to explore acupuncture. Maybe I could go for a chiropractor. Well, you know, because all I do is pills, take the pills and go. You know, that's my method. Um, and we know that. And that's what we've got to apply to horses and, and horsemanship and, and our relationships with them, I think. Yeah, for sure. The first experience that I had, uh, like, really clearly with this was I had three horses in training. One was the little stallion, and then I had, like, a really, really, really hot mare that was had really bad, like, um, separation anxiety trying to take her off the property. And then I also had a big gelding Clyde cross thoroughbred that was very, like, bolshy, pushy, kind of, kind of stubborn horse. And... You don't appreciate how much you have to change to work with such different personality types, not to mention how differently you have to ride the different strides as well, right? Like the little pony has short steps. The, you know, the mare was hot and quick. You had to try and get her to relax and the Clyde was, you know, a bit lazy. So you had to like figure out how to inspire him to have a work ethic and, you know, the, the amount of pressure that I had the little stallion under doing like training to be an instructor, put that on the little man, it would just fry her brain. And then, you mm -hmm. know, the only training skills I had with him was you make him tired and they relax, but she would flip and she'd start feeding on adrenaline and she'd be the type of horse that would just collapse before she relaxed under that situation. So it's like, there's just you know, so many different things that you need to take into consideration when you're looking at the different breeds and the different ways that they, like what they were bred for is so important and making sure that they're doing jobs that they were, that they enjoy is, is so important to having a horse that enjoys what it's doing. Yeah, absolutely. But if you, if you take the individuals, you know, what I always show people is a, is a a triangle or sort of one side of a pyramid and the bottom piece is uh, species behavior so this is you know relevant for donkeys and stuff as well and and your species behavior is your equine or your dog or your cat you know that's behavior that all of those animals uh, do in that species and then on on top of that you have your breed behavior so you know like you said your cob is going to behave differently from your thoroughbred from your shetland um you know you and certainly from your donkey that the donkey is going to behave differently if it's a mini donkey than if it's a, a plateau or a mammoth donkey and then on top of that you have uh the individual nature so you go you know my donkey that that's been brought up and and trained and handled from the time it was a day old is going to behave differently than the one that was abandoned and was neglected and didn't get any handling so you know a lot of people will work from the species level or even the breed level but it's that individual level as well that you add on top of that to go what's right for that animal how do i where am i starting with them to be able to make it successful for who they are and, and where they need to go yeah that's so true it's so important yeah to recognize that hey and and it's interesting that you know just talking about donkeys for a moment is is there's a tendency to think people say to me Ben you know how do I train a donkey, and what they mean is compared to a horse. And for me, that we're looking at it the wrong way around. We're presuming that the horse standard is the gold standard, and therefore, what do we how do we train a donkey? I would argue that actually um, we should. Actually, there's an old saying, you know, you can tell a horse what to do. I'm not saying you should, but you can tell a horse what to do. You, you ask a donkey and you negotiate with a mule. And, and for me, what I always say to people is, look, you know, when I'm training you to work with an animal, I'm training you at the mule standard. Yeah. So to negotiate, using the science of behavior. One thing with mules is, you know, you really have to get it right with mules. They, their self-preservation, which they get from their donkey father, means that uh, they are they have this conflict between the, the the fight and and the flight so the fight of the donkey father and the stoic nature and the flight mechanism of the mare mother and how those interact with each other so you often see mules if they're not well handled will kind of be terrible and, and terrified of being caught and eventually trap them and catch them and then they stand there really stoically and say look at them see wouldn't let me be caught and i was being fine and then you push them too far and they revert back to their horse mother's uh, behavior and they leap out and they panic and, and they do all that and that confuses people because they're not seeing one consistent species behavior mm. 
And but if you use the science of behavior, you're working with the mules at, at that level and applying the, the scientific techniques. And then you, you do the same thing for the donkey, and then it's easy to train a horse. You know, if, if you can train a horse, you can train a horse. If you can train a donkey, you can train donkeys and horses. If you can train a mule, you can train anything. And so we, we've got it the wrong way around. It, it, to me, it's like if, if you get to train a mule, then you really get good at training. And, they, and donkeys, you know, they, they have, um, because of their ancestry, so they are more of um, a type two social organization. That means that in the wild, the donkeys, donkeys ancestors had uh, territories. So the male will hold a territory around a watering hole. Females tend to live on their own or with last year's offspring. They don't live in harrying groups like horses tend to do in the wild. Uh, there are some exceptions for the Adriatic acids, but the domesticated donkey comes from this species where they would live in very harsh conditions, very little water and food, so they couldn't support large groups. And that produces different behavior. They um, will be more stoic. They don't show the same signs uh, of fear or pain. That doesn't mean to say they don't experience those things. They just don't show them in the same way as a horse. And... Uh, they tend to have much more of a flight mechanism, uh, a, a freeze mechanism, sorry. They will stand and, and because they're territorial, defend their territories. They will chase small stock and, and all sorts of things like that that are, are uniquely donkey. They're normal things. They tend to play more physically than, than horses will do with each other, especially as they age, you know, common for young foals to play with each other. But as they get to be 5, 6, 10, 15 years old, donkeys are still playing. And there's the difference you know what happens with um donkeys is people tend to look at them and think small horse big ears <laughs> so they put them in the species bracket and the breed bracket brackets for for that you know what do i do with an animal that looks like that how do i train it and they try and train it like a donkey like a horse and then the you know when you have a horse uh, you take it to something scary it's really easy to see whether it's it's frightened you've got the flaring nostrils we've talked you know the whites of the eyes you can tell it's scary you go okay whoa it's scared steady let's calm down let's try not to you know overreach it take a donkey to the to the same thing and it's equally as scared but it kind of goes mm, it's a bit worrying and you don't see the same level of fear in their eyes and the body language and all of that and so you ask again and again, and, and what your brain does is to go, so I can see that you don't want to do this, but you don't appear to be scared. So if you're not scared, but you don't want to do what I'm asking you to do, you must just be stubborn. Yes. And so there's this whole label for donkeys as being stubborn and mules are being stubborn. And what it is, is a miscommunication of the understanding of those individual needs of that species and those, those animals. And so if you take that all the way through back to methods, that's what's happening we're just applying yeah. a method rather than saying what does the donkey need us to do what does the the mule need us to do and be able to understand their characteristics down to that individual level to apply what's right for them amazing <laughs> thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge and your insights with us uh it's been so good love it uh if people want to learn more and um understand this a little bit better and whatnot they can go over to your website which is www.heartshorsemanship.com um or you have your your courses uh hearts um h-a-a sorry h-a-r-t-s slash horsemanship.thinkific.com uh, but we will put the the links in the show notes there as as well so you can click around and have a little look it's just been an absolute pleasure talking to you <laughs> well you know I, I i hope i hope that the listeners are you know i, I get excited about stuff and and uh, i'm enthusiastic to try and help people or, or make people feel normal help people yeah. find their own path to horsemanship whatever that is you know it, it's not for me to decide what you should do with your animal it, it's for you to have that clear authentic voice about what you want to do and you know just just put in you know ben hart horses horsemanship on onto your search engine and, and there's a load of free resources and things to to look at and and uh, try and get more support or more ideas or, or whatever it might be that people need just to advance their journey um, yeah. wherever they are. I think that's a really key thing for me because that helps horses, that helps donkeys, it helps mules once we start communicating more effectively and supporting each other. I think the community grows and, and we feel better about it. We feel better about ourselves. Yeah, 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, love it. Definitely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my favorite topic. (laughs) Thank you. uh, You know, trying to just, yeah, make a difference, really. Ah, how good was that? Binge it, listen it, listen to it, take notes, repeat, binge, listen, take notes, repeat, binge, listen, take notes. Uh, such a pleasure to have Ben join us and go through all of these topics with us to gift us with his time and his knowledge. Uh, we really appreciate the conversations and you guys for being here listening and making it all happen. Thanks for listening and until next time, happy trails. If you're loving what you're listening to on the podcast, you might be starting to recognize that trying to control your horse through submission-based training is the worst way to ask your horse to look after you. If you're working with or riding horses, you know how unpredictable and sometimes scary they can be. Unfortunately, most struggling horse riders make the mistake of thinking they can physically control their 400 plus kilo fur babies by moving their feet or spooking them into responding with flags and join up. Without giving your horse a reason to care about you and look after you, you will most likely end up with a horse that is disconnected at best, shut down or explosive at worst because they can't communicate their needs with you. Especially if you are already scared, worried or nervous handling your horse. That's why we've created our new free online training experience, Building a Connection with Your Horse. This is how I've gone about creating safe horses for beginners, no matter the breed or previous handling experiences. If you want to learn the secret source behind developing safe horses that care about you and look after you without trauma triggering training methods, register for our new training today at www.equestriummovement.com forward slash connection. And I will uncover the three big mistakes you might be making if you're trying to build a relationship with your horse and how you can start building your horse's trust and confidence in you as a leader worth following.